Yeah, yeah. Thank you for um, making the the time to to join us. Um, what are, I remember, we were emailing, uh, I guess, like a month ago um, now. So, what what popped up that that you're out of town for now? Um, now I'm in California. I have three home bases, and that's Los Angeles, Chicago, and China. So ordinarily, I move pretty seamlessly between those three places. Yeah. But with COVID, everything is really up for grabs. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So what's your what's your like sweet sleep quality like on a daily basis going from all those time zones? It's really it's complicated. Um, <laughs> I had a three a.m. meeting a couple of days ago, so I'm working in time zones, and I also do some work in the UK. So I'm working in time zones that can be either eight hours apart or 15 hours apart. And then China doesn't have daylight savings time. So we always have to recalculate for time changes in the U.S. So it's there, there are definitely times when I'm working pretty much around the clock. But it's interesting stuff. I really like it. And that's, that's you know, that's the gig. Yeah. Well, that, that so, so, and, and. That's interesting. Do you, do you feel like you have a unique like perspective on politics being able, like like talking to different people all the time? Like, yeah. When I look back at my history, uh, is this preliminary or are we are we rolling here? Oh yeah, we're we're, we're rolling. Yeah, this is. Oh, this all right. Fine. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know we were chit chatting. Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. is either way is fine. Um, you know, I've, I've been a professor at an HBCU and I've been a professor in China and in England and in Wales and in Los Angeles. And in, so um, I, I think probably my whole history has been to see politics from multiple perspectives. I've, I've never been rooted with one perspective only. Mm, yeah. Well, I already man, I already have a million questions. Uh, but before we do that, I, I, I've had this like terrible habit of like, like I'll like try to, to figure out like what the, the secret to life is. And then like finally introduce my guest 20 or 30 minutes in. So before we like go any further in, um, do you want to do the honors of introducing yourself to the listeners? Yes, yeah, I'd be glad to. Um, I'm I'm Lori Shire. I am a professor at Hunan Normal University in uh, Changsha, which is uh, Hunan Province in China. I direct a British and American Poetry Center there. I direct a creative writing program, and I'm also co-editor of an international scholarly journal. And I am also the founding director of a poetry center at California State University at Los Angeles. It's a contemporary multicultural poetry center. Um, I'm still a professor at Cal State LA as well as Hunan Normal University. And my academic focus is, um, uh, is poetry, the genre of poetry and poetics and particularly poetry of the black diaspora. Yeah, wow. I'm, I'm a native of Chicago 
And as I mentioned, I, I bounce between Los Angeles, Chicago, and China right now. Mm. Wow, that is that that so okay. Let, let's 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 see because I'm I'm always just interested. Um, I, I was asking uh, a my neighbor's niece. She's like an eighth grader, and and <laughs> I asked her this because she's really like big into poetry. She's in her like poetry club and um like what uh, especially if it if it happens at a young age like it is is how does how does it how do you get into it like 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 for would you say for yourself or for most people that are really into poetry um do, do you get into it by like kind of like writing for yourself is it like a therapeutic thing for yourself or like do you immediately get into it for like what it is from an academic standpoint yeah, no, for, for many people it is. Uh, I've, I've been doing this for such a long time, and I have to say that, that my ideas have changed. I, when I was younger, I think I used to have more rigid ideas about how one becomes a poet and how poetry should be practiced. And over time, I've become, I think, a lot more kind of relaxed and uh, open-minded, inclusive. Uh, yeah, I've, I've always been interested in poetry that's suppressed. From the time I was, I've been interested in poetry since I was a kid. And what interested me most was the poetry that wasn't being presented to me, Mm -hmm. because I often found it more interesting than the poetry that I was being presented with. So from the time I was very young, I would seek out poetry that was considered to be either substandard or marginalized or not proper, not correct, not by the right person. And uh, and over time, it's, it's turned out that it was a useful perspective for, for my teaching, for my scholarship, for my own poetry. Um, so uh, I think uh, whatever purpose poetry fills for anybody is a good thing. I defend it. For me personally, I would not consider it to be therapeutic. It's not necessarily a place I, I work out issues or problems. I'm more interested in where poetry can take me that I've never been before, because I believe it does that. But for many people, poetry is, is akin to journaling, and they really are not interested necessarily in an audience. And I think that's great, too. I think people write poetry for a lot of different reasons in a lot of different ways, and I, I kind of defend it all. Mm. Wow. Um, so, so that, okay, that, that – so. I, let, let, where, do, where do I even start? Because that, that's the problem with having like a ton of questions. It's hard to, to know where, just where to start. But like with this, though, um, I, I, so I, when I was talking to this, this uh, young lady, um, I asked her her opinion because it's interesting that you, you said um, that you're less rigid as time um, uh, went on, which is t- to me, I guess from my experience, I would say people – um, become tend to become more rigid as time goes on in the sense that like mm-hmm. gatekeeping tends to be um, a thing as like one gets like further into their career. That being said, it was interesting because talking to her, I asked her um, and I forget her name, um, who we were talking about. We were talking about the, uh, the young woman. She uh, read her poetry um, 
at the super in the Super Bowl commercial and the I think one of the halftime shows as well. Um, and also Amanda the, Gorman. Yeah, mm-hmm. and the uh, inauguration. And it was interesting, like hearing so talking to this this um, you know this girl in middle school. She's like, yeah, you know, I'm I'm not like really a big fan of like the poetry that's supposed to like satisfy the masses. And I think it's too like, I, I guess like her, her beef with it <laughs> was that it was like a bit too accessible and like, and I, 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 I kind of, though I didn't quite agree, I kind of understood, I at least understood the mindset of that comment um, in that like, uh, let's say you're, you're, like musicians can make like music for other musicians or make it in a way where millions of people like it and it's on the radios and like there's chatter within whatever community you're in. And then of course, like the general public. So I guess my, my, my question uh, for you is like, what is, is, is the gatekeeping in poetry intense, at least in your, your experience? Um, I think I would say culture in general right now is a little chaotic. And I think it's because life right now is a little chaotic. Mm. So right now, I don't see there being a, an extremely dominant gatekeeping poetry community because there can't be. There have been too many assaults on the main house right now for there to be that kind of of bastion of properness or correctness. On the other hand, there are definitely some institutions that are highly esteemed that are viewed as um, uh, publishing poetry that is of the highest level of quality, publishers as well as journals. Um, and, And to some extent it's true, but I often find myself not reading those 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 sort of obvious choices. Uh, I am I'm person. I've been reading poetry for a very long time. I'm personally interested in what I haven't been exposed to before. Mm. It excites me more. It challenges me more. It interests me more. So if I'm reading something that's considered to be canonical or familiar or representing the major values of the mainstream of a culture, it's it's going to have a certain level of predictability to me that I don't think really matches the history of poetry. If we look at the history of poetry, go all the way back, we'll see that poetry has been constant change. It's been constant challenge to the values of the mainstream. It, it has always been a, a gadfly. It's always been um, the corrective to, to what's going wrong with the culture. And I think we need it for that. So I would, I, I think that poetry is doing, its, doing its, its role, doing its mission, most both traditionally and effectively, if it can um, raise questions and challenges about what we consider to be the admirable values of our society. Because of course, any, any kind of, of art or culture is always going to be in relation to the society that's created it. So, so what you're talking about is poetry that reinforces the values of the mainstream society and poetry that challenges those values. Mm, okay. Uh, so that, 
I guess now knowing that it makes a lot more sense in terms of like um, thinking about that, you know, the young lady's comment and like if poetry kind of does come from a, a place where, you know, maybe people who usually don't have, um, a, a, you know, that voice of power like that, like that, that is an outlet to to speak to power and things like that. And of course, also at that age, like, I mean, even outside of poetry, um, depending on who your your teachers are, like that, that can really shape just like what you think about anything. Um, so, you know, that that being said, uh, it, it's interesting because like, so something you said earlier when introducing yourself, um, your interest in poetry that, um, you know, it, it, it was, I guess, never supposed to see the light in a way, especially black poetry. Th that to me is, is so I always, I always think of things in music or film. And like when you said that, I was thinking, I was like, hmm, I wonder what my, what would my music sound like if I made music with the, in, like knowing that or believing that no one would really hear it. No one would listen to it. And so I guess my, my question for you is like, when you're reading this poetry, how much does them possibly believing that no one will ever see it impact the, the writing itself? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, these, these, are, these are fascinating directions that you're going in. Um, if, you know, to, to, to go back, if you're writing for a mainstream and, and the young lady's comment interests me quite a lot. I think she's, I think she's a, a, a sharp young woman. I hope, I hope her voice remains loud and vital. But if you're writing for the, the, the greatest approval by the greatest number of people, you better check yourself at the door and try to figure out why. Hmm. Um, if you're writing because there's something you feel is really important to communicate. And when you talk about music, if we think about the history of jazz, um, my, my, my sort of origin story for, for my interest in African-American poetry is the spirituals, which I consider to be the foundation of the African-American poetry tradition. So the, the idea that, that early African-American music was created for somehow widespread approval or a mainstream or a big audience is, is, is preposterous. And then if we look at what has really lasted and why, um, you know, I, I think I would agree with you that there was maybe even an assumption that this is something that would not necessarily appeal to conventional standards of taste. Yeah. Yeah. Man, that, that is, it's, that's that that's so interesting and and, and I, I i think like um the from the 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 units of poetry throughout grade school that i can <laughs> remember it was a frustrating process for me just because like it it um i i don't i don't know why but poetry always it always made me, I always felt like I, I had to be like absolutely calm to write something. Like, like, like I couldn't have like things just like running through my head. Um, as you can tell, like I just have stuff bouncing around my head all the time. And I think poetry frustrated me because I was like, okay, I have to start something and like stick to it and finish it. And like, it's it just, and you know, there's form and all this, which is, 
anyway, I guess my, my point is like, with what so many of these black poets were experiencing um, in their lives, to have like the, the patience to like put real pain and real issues into an art form instead of like, like, you know, doing so, I, I don't know, maybe just going out there and like, you know, the finding somebody to hit, finding somebody to take that on, like to yeah, actually, yeah. like to take it out on the, on the pencil and paper. To me, that's incredible. It's like, like, like I, I didn't even have the patience to like do these like 15 minute poetry exercises like we had in school. So, um, outside of the poetry, uh, do, do you, do you read about these, these people and like, like learn about why they pick up poetry? Like, do, do you, do you, do, like, is that information available when you're reading about these poets? Sure. No, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by, I'm fascinated by everything to do with poetry and poetry is created by people. Mm-hmm. So naturally I'm, I'm fascinated by, by the people who created it and why, but I really like your comment because it's actually something I use in my own teaching. Um, I tell I because I work with all levels and I'm a university professor, but I work with senior citizens. I work with grade school kids. I work with high school kids. I work with disenfranchised groups, maybe maybe um, young people who have have have, um, a lot of challenges, you know, have not had such a successful uh, educational path. And I'll tell them, this is a really healthy way for you to express everything. You don't have to be calm. You can be loud. You can, you don't even have to write it down. You can talk into your phone. You can uh, freestyle. You can, you can have a friend record you. You can do so many different things. It doesn't have to have a center. It doesn't have to have to follow any particular form um, any any single idea that's not even who you are nobody's one thing only you know we're we're a multiplicity of all kinds of stuff all the time and so I my my view of poetry you know I I, I, I work with my students all the time on sort of trying to define it but accepting that we won't define it because it's it is so many different wonderful things and I tell them, Instead of going out on the street, instead of punching somebody, instead of saying something you'll regret, instead of committing an act you're going to be sorry for and there will be bad consequences, you've got your voice. And, you know, yeah. that's, that's, that's more socially beneficial to all of us for you to use that voice. And it's certainly more personally beneficial to you. Yeah. So that's that for me, that's very for real what you said. Yeah. No, it's, it's, um, uh, yeah, I, I, I just really respect that that level of um, uh, uh, patience that 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 someone can have, um, especially obviously um, uh, a lot of these, you know, uh, uh, this is there. It, it dates all the way back to to slavery, uh, the Jim Crow era um, and just like writing about things that are are just so real and maybe things that they had experienced like in their lives or perhaps like minutes before they picked up the the pencil and started writing or whatever like it 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 to um because when i had i had who obviously you know dr robbins on um i like went back and looked through her her book and read a couple of them and um you you can hear that you can hear that tone of like not just like not caring if i the 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 reader um 
thinks like what I think of it, whether I think it's great or not, you can kind of just hear like, it's like, okay, I'm just going to write this. And it, I, I don't know. It's so, it, it is refreshing. And, and I guess going back to that, to the, to the young ladies, um, comment I mentioned earlier, I understand, um, both sides. Like I understand why, um, maybe writing uh, poetry for the masses, uh, maybe putting poetry on like some type of platform, which I'm, I'm curious to see like what your opinion on this is, but like putting poetry on a platform where like, I guess everyday people are just at the very least reminded that, hey, poetry exists and it's beautiful. It can be powerful. And, but then also, also understanding that it's this like precious thing where uh, it has been used to voice like real issues and real concerns. So, um, yeah, I mean, I guess, do, do you, do you think poetry maybe need is a strong word, but like for lack of a, of a better word, do you, do you think poetry needs those mainstream moments just to kind of remind the world about poetry, like fundamentally? You know, I, again, I feel, I feel so much judgmental. Um, and it's, it's really from the heart. Um, I've been asked about Amanda Gorman's uh, poem at the inauguration quite a bit, as you can imagine. I've been asked about Bob Dylan being honored as a poet. You know, I, I get I get asked a lot of questions. And, um, and, and I used to have students that would come to arts and culture, including poetry, from what I didn't necessarily consider to be the most rarefied examples, um, uh, whether it was TV shows or memoirs. Um, and my response is pretty much the same, which is anything that brings you to something that I think is valuable. I think arts and culture are essential. I think they're valuable. I think they make us they make us human. They keep the keep the world from being in even more of a mess than it is. So whatever brings you there, that's good with me. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh man, that that's that's I, I I like that perspective because I think it it leaves, um, like like there's 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 very little reason really ever in life, like in anything, to completely close the door on something. Um, like they're really, you know, it, 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 at, at the very least, um, uh, like even if something's not my cup of tea, uh, I don't have a problem with people enjoying it. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it. yeah, you know, it's one thing for me to not like it, but then like for me to want other people to not enjoy something is just like, like why? You know, I, so anytime I, I run, you know, uh, or come across people that, like if they could wave a wand, they could just like end like an entire thing. It's like, hey, just, just, it's just not for you, you know? To me, it's, it's, it's that simple. You know, what you close the door on is racism. You close the door on things that are, that are destructive to mm -hmm. our humanity. That's mm -hmm. what you close the door on. But um, if, if you start especially with young people, especially with students, or even, you know, I'll get sometimes I'll get older adults who are opening up their mind to new things at certain stages of their lives. And if you are too rigid, if you give somebody an idea that this is the right way, this is the wrong way, this is proper, this is respected, this isn't, that's it. You know, you're, mm -hmm. you're, 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 you're closing the door on any more exploration that they might do in the future. So mm -hmm. to me, it is so much better 
just to say, that's great. Come on in. Let's talk about it. Let's mm. you tell me, you share with me what attracts you. Maybe I can suggest some other things that you'd also find interesting. And to me, just as a teacher, that's that's a more respectful way to operate mm-hmm. than to, to, to start um, drawing lines early on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I 100 percent agree. And um Man, I you know just just talking to you, I can I can tell that you're you're obviously you know we've introduced you as uh, you know a poet and you teach poetry, but I can tell that you're you're someone that like you know you're obviously you're you're more than that. You have thoughts on on all kinds of things. So my I guess my because uh, we we like almost almost kind of touched on um, uh, like politics for like a, a second like early on in that like hmm, how do I how do I so so I. Through, with your knowledge in, in poetry, um, I always I always wonder how like whatever someone does uh, as a profession, how it impacts um, uh, just how they view things in in general, just every day. I, and I don't even know if this is a good example, but like um, if I'm sitting in a room and I'm the only musician, and you know there's other people in the room, and maybe there's like a generator or refrigerator in the room, and it's like buzzing this like note. It's a it's buzzing a a a, a C sharp, and I'm sitting there going like, we all hear this buzz, but like I am interpreting this in like this way because of what I do. And I you know when an architect is in a building, he's experiencing that thing differently than like me. So, so with, with you, like, you know, whatever themes or big issues that like, you know, are, are going on in the world, I guess, how has poetry, how does poetry just shape your everyday being? Yeah. Yeah. And, and you give such a great example. Um, the way I view it is, is what you're drawn to. And so, so becoming a musician, becoming a poet, it starts off with who you are. And it's, it's so, it's, so it's, a, it's, a little, it's a little bit chicken and egg. So you become a poet, you become a musician, you become an artist because of how you experience the world. And then it just uh, doubles back on itself. So uh, I, I think probably a, a, a moral or ethical or political sensibility and, a, and a, an aesthetic sensibility to me, are all one. I can't really separate them out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm very sensitive to language, of course, mm-hmm. um, and often it is charged language. Um, I'm, I'm very aware of language used as a weapon for good. Um, you know, go, go back to uh, Representative Lewis. Um, you know, there can be good trouble. There can be powerful, offensive, good language for an important cause. And um, there can be language that is only intended to hurt and separate. So I'd say that that I'm I'm quite sensitive to the motive behind language. And it's something I take really, really seriously. I don't. I don't view any kind of slight or exclusion or observation as funny or casual mm. the way maybe some other people might. Right. I mean, because even jokes have uh, a little or a massive amount of truth in them. So, 
um, let alone, you know, uh, I guess non joking conversation. And that being said, it's, it's, um, it's interesting because like you said, you're, you're sensitive to language in general and, um, that, so it, it, which is, you know, I, I think for me, like if I'm, let's say I'm hearing a, um, uh, a politician speak, you know, give a speech or especially during election times where like, you know, they all have, especially when it's early on, like they don't even have a nominee yet. So there's like 12 people trying to convince you why they should be the nominee. And, um, you know, it, I think like now we have, we have more insight on every industry just because of like documentaries and like vlogging, like the day-to-day stuff and all that. And I feel like we, for the most part, we're aware that so much goes into attention to detail, especially dealing with a candidate, like the speech writing, the color of their tie, the color of like <laughs> their, their contacts. I don't even know, but like, like everything is, is, you know, they, they have so much intent with what they do, which means that like when you're hearing them speaking, speaking, you don't even have to, at the very least, you don't have to guess that there is like very, very clear intent. And, 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 and that being said, like what, how, when you're, when you're just hearing people speak in general, but especially people that are trying to like sell you this idea or, or, or message, like what is it that you're paying attention to or what, what's going through your head? Well, I, I think you're raising the question of authenticity mm. and how much we've lost, uh, you know, precisely that, how, how, how cynical and um, uh, reduced communication has become. And then, we, you know, we look at the media that we're receiving this information and it's, it's, it's not a question of blame, but it's part and parcel how it is we're receiving things is so radically different. So if you read back in, in, in read back in history and you look at how information was conveyed through what mechanisms um, and what standards of judgment were being used, it's going to be quite different than what we currently experience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that it's, 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 I mean, cause for, for me, when I'm, I'm hearing a, a I think I have a very like lazy, <laughs> like what summary when just listening to any politician, like I won't pay attention to it. Um, like with like, like, like I won't pay attention to it carefully because I'll just tell myself, okay, it's, it's probably BS. So don't even like look into what they're, they're saying. And which I know, which I know is not like the, the best perspective to have. It's no, very, it's heartbreaking. I yeah. think, I think it's, it's, I understand it completely. Mm-hmm. I even defend it's so, so sad. Um, and, you know, I can go into real corny territory about heroes and leaders and who we would listen to for being a voice of truth and vision. Mm-hmm. We're not surrounded by them now. There have been times in history when we have had authentic leaders to turn to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um it, it, they haven't been around in a, in a while. There are people I respect, people I, or I admire, but... And, and this this is this is not at all my field. I'm a poetry specialist. I'm not a political scientist. But it strikes me that in order to to, and I'm not saying anything original, but to get into a position of power today requires qualities that are that are that are that make us pretty squeamish. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's um uh, 
I mean, I, I guess kind of how I, I think of it, like I, I'll talk to maybe someone that's in their 70s or something and they'll be like, uh, you know, when I went to uh, college, I worked like half of a shift and was able to pay for all four years, like in, you know, after like just working like mm -hmm. a, a day of work and, and like, you know, now college costing, um, I guess, I mean, it's. I graduated in 2018 and it's like five or six, maybe more grand, you know, not including interest like per year. So it's just going up every year. And like now it's, it's like, um, I, I use that analogy in a way in terms of like campaigning, uh, in that, like, I imagine that all of this, everything was cheaper back then, which mean that like, which means that like you needed, you didn't need to, you know, kiss anyone, like, like at least as many people's ass for campaign funding as you do today. Like, like imagine, you know, 60, 70 years ago, it was probably just like how like, you know, school, it was 10, maybe even more times cheaper than it is today. Like just running a campaign because there wasn't TV ads you had to buy. There weren't internet, uh, you know, attention on the internet you had to purchase or just all this little stuff. So, you know, cause, and anytime I have a, a conversation about politics, I'm just like, well, when you need like 50 million plus dollars to win an election, I mean, how, how do you stay true to your word if you just need somebody to give you that money? You know, like, yeah, um, I'm, I'm thinking also, I mean, you're, 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 I think you're quite correct to talk about those practicalities, which are, um, you know, they're in the air, they're outside my area of expertise. But but I think about um, political causes that people get involved in. So um, I have, I have, um, I've actually, uh, California State University, the, the system, I think it's actually the whole state of California, used to have a fabulous policy, they offered free tuition to senior citizens. Um, and that was discontinued for, for financial reasons. Mm -hmm. But when I began teaching at Cal State LA, I would routinely have students in my classes that would take class after class after class, and they'd be in their 70s and 80s and 90s. And I loved it. The students loved it because they brought a perspective of, of, of historical periods we were studying. And they lived through them. So I had I had one student that I'm thinking of, maybe he'll, he'll watch this podcast, who um, dropped out of college to register voters. He was a participant in the Freedom Summer. Uh, so you have an older generation whose, whose activism is so inspiring, I'm finding, for my current students. Mm. So there were a number of interim generations that I think perhaps were more materialistic or had uh, more egocentric values perhaps. But I look at my students today and they care about causes. They care about the environment. They care about the world that they've inherited and the world that they will pass along. Mm. So. I, I would like to optimistically think that that maybe there can be a, a kind of rebirth or resurgence of a different kind of politics, a different use of media. And you asked the question about uh, what I might see as a poet and re relating to, to, I think, current politics. Uh, I look around neighborhoods 
I'm currently in Los Angeles and I've been in Chicago for the last few months. And neighborhoods in both cities are just filled with signs that people have in front of their homes. This house believes in. Wow. So I, I think you've probably seen lots of those. Yeah. You know, in this house, we believe Black Lives Matter. We believe um, uh, there's no such thing as a human being who's an alien. Yeah. You know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about? These sorts of signs. Mm-hmm. They're like statements of, 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 of ethos. And then I've also seen signs that... Um, that have very different sort of political diction that say things like, we believe all men and women matter, yeah. which is, which is, you know, a little problematical. Yeah. We believe all lives matter. We believe in the second amendment. Um, we, we believe in democracy, not socialism. Um, so the signage from, from a literary perspective is quite an interesting thing that people are actually using language to publicly pronounce their ethos. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and that that's, I guess you know having that insight, it must be interesting to see like, um, you know I I guess it kind of comes back to to marketing, but specifically with language, um, uh, even if someone has like a really really good point the importance of communicating it with like certain words and in certain ways that like will really hit when someone like hears it or, or reads it. Um, man, that's gotta be that. And I don't even know whose uh, department that is in terms of like, uh, you know, but, but it's just like coming up with that way of like saying, or, or I don't even, you know, just in a way where it's just like, you just know millions of people can just like latch onto that thing um, and yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I think that's the one thing to, in, in terms of politics, like we can stay optimistic about is that like, um, things can, once something is out there and becomes like an idea in, in culture, um, like money or not, whether it's funded or, or not, you can't really take it back and, and people talk about it. Um, you know, this is how information spreads on a basic level. Um, that being said, uh, th- this so th- this is cool just because, um, like with 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 poetry and um, everything, you being able you working in in uh, China and then working uh, here in the UK, um, you're not only are you meeting all these people, but you're also experiencing language on a level where you're going to places where people are more or less free to express, uh, things like, uh, maybe you as a, um, um, or me or you or I, like as a business person in China or in this place might have like, you know, we're, we're, we're very fortunate to be able to point the finger directly at power in this, in this country. So, um, that being said, I know your expertise is on, on, you know, uh, 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 black poetry, but, what what does poetry look like for the oppressed in in other nations? Have you have you studied that at all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, black British poetry is something that I've studied quite a bit and written about quite a bit. Um, and that that's that's a really interesting situation because the American literary canon is so based on the British literary canon. Mm-hmm. Even when we're saying 
going back to people like Whitman, even when we're saying we're not them, uh, we're looking for an indigenous American voice. You know, we're, we're, we, um, we're reacting against those, those romantic British examples. Um, it's still the touchstone, but for black British poets, black and ethnic minority British poets, they had very few examples in the 20th century to be able to represent protests, to be able to speak for themselves. And they look to African-American poets. Mm. So people like Sonia Sanchez, Hakim Marubuti. Um, so this, was, this is one of those interesting reversals where we've had people throughout the world who have looked to African-American culture, especially during the civil rights movement, as being an exemplar for themselves more than their own national models. Mm. This tremendous interest in African-American literature and culture in China, for example, uh, it, it represents, you know, it's, of course, it's a, it's a communist nation. And as such, it's extremely interested in oppressed populations and examples of discrimination and class consciousness. So we find it in abundance in African-American history. So there's just an exploding um, interest in courses and publications among Chinese scholars and students uh, interested in African-American literature yeah. and culture. That's interesting. Um, in Japan, there's huge interest in black music. Yeah, yeah. And and do you, do you find... Um when teaching uh, material, obviously dealing with uh, uh, young American uh, citizens, young Chinese citizens and UK citizens, like um, how, how, how different are, is like material that maybe you discuss with those students? Like how is it like received on, on average? Yeah. Well, interestingly, you said citizens in the UK, of course, they're not citizens, they're subjects. Oh yeah. Right. And so, (laughs) (laughs) so, you know, even even that word is a little bit fraught. We're citizens. They're, they're, they don't consider themselves that way. Um, so, uh, you know, each of those populations, and this has been really fascinating to me, will, will um, you know, receive and interpret cultural materials, whether it's from their own culture or from another nation. They'll receive and interpret it very differently. So as a, as a teacher and as somebody who really loves poetry and really loves arts and culture, and, and who really believes it's a good thing. I believe arts and culture are a really good thing yeah. uh, when, when, when used in a humane way. Um, I should, I should um, put that caveat on. Uh, it's, it's, it's very thrilling to me when I see Chinese students who will, will respond entirely differently to Wordsworth or Shakespeare than a British or American student might. Um, then conversely, they're, they're quite different perspectives from British and American students of Chinese classical literature. Mm. Yeah. I love the dialogue. Yeah. Yeah. That it's, it's, um, I don't even know how to, to, to ask this. Cause I just, I, I know there's probably like a term for this, but it's like how, what, what you have or what you believe you have influences your creativity to a, a large, large extent in that, like, um, I have, I've, like, it, it's interesting, so I, I, I didn't grow up with, like, a, a, a lot of money 
at all. And I realized that like as I started, you know, getting better and better jobs and started like just doing more, I realized that like I there were things that I never thought of because somehow like my brain would shut down like before even like entertaining certain stuff, it would shut it down because like I wouldn't maybe those ideas like I couldn't even afford to really act upon them. And that I, I guess I, I use that kind of as a um, analogy in that like uh, maybe being a, a, a student from um, China or from, uh, you know, somewhere else uh, uh, maybe where like expressing your opinion um, is, 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 you know, it's not quite as, as easy as it is here. I just wonder how that, I, I wonder if that shuts down creativity in a way that like, like, like before something even entered, like it doesn't even enter your head because there's already like a, a like a wall of limitation. Um, and, and, but not, but not even in a, in a negative way. I also wonder what that perspective could create that um, maybe someone who um, is not that limited in terms of expressiveness can create. Um, do you, do you, do you see that at all just in your everyday interactions? Yeah. You're, th th this, you know, again, I just have so much respect for what you're doing and for who you are. And these, these, this conversation is really fascinating to me. You're talking from my point of view about something that is human and then you're also talking human and social. Mm -hmm. And then you're also talking about something that is national and political. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes you get intersections between those two. So the idea that you are restricted in what's for you. And you know, to go back to poetry, I mean, that's what I really like about poetry. Sometimes students will say, this is not for me. This is for sort of rarefied people or fancy people. Same with opera. Oh, opera, that's for rich folks who can afford opera tickets. So there's a certain amount of, you read Black Boy, you read Native Son, uh, expectations about the smallness of your world. Um, I had a student in Wales, who was, he was a brilliant PhD student, maybe I'll tell him to listen, who uh, came from very humble, a very humble background. And his friends, while he was studying for a PhD at a top university, did not know he was studying for a PhD. Uh, he didn't want them to know because he thought that they might think he had uh, uh, grand aspirations or he'd risen above his station. Mm. So he told them that when he wasn't there, he was rolling rugby turf. Uh, wow. <laughs> that was that was a job that they could respect and relate to. Okay. So um, I had a, a student in England, uh, again, a brilliant poet. Um, and um, I said, what are, your, what are your plans when you graduate? And he said, um, I'm going to be a dustman, you know, a garbage collector. And I said, well, what appeals to you about being a dustman? Why have you decided that's your career after you get your bachelor's degree in creative writing? And he said, well, it's not anything I want to do or I'm interested in doing, but my father was a dustman. My grandfather was a dustman. So I'm going to be a dustman. Uh, so there is a certain amount of of constraint that we buy into mm. because of our environment. And you know, I think my my one of my jobs as a teacher is to say there's nothing that's not for you. Yeah. Everything's for you here. You try this. Try that. Try this. You know, what do you think? So there's there's kind of that set of constraints. But then you get very authentic national, political, cultural constraints. 
And don't we all have trade-offs? I cannot say everything I'm thinking and feeling and believe in a classroom in America. I can't. It would be really, it would be inappropriate, it'd be stupid, it would lead to bad consequences. Uh, So when, when people say, when you're in China, can you say whatever you think? Can your students say whatever uh, whatever they think? And I'll say, no, of course not. But it's not really different in mm-hmm. in in many ways from America. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We are all you, you know. You have to to you have to check out the environment. You have to check out the audience. You have to check out the purpose. Um, and then, you know, maybe that's part of the complication of politics. They're not saying what they really think either. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I guess um, I, I, I really like that you, you, you know, you pointed that out in the sense that like, I guess here it's um, obviously, you know, cancel culture and, and all that. Um, and, and but it, with here, I guess like it's, it's important to like, uh, I guess note the difference between like um, you say something that is considered inappropriate and like, okay, you're you're, maybe you're, you're somewhere where, uh, so here, no one's going to like drag you to, um, uh, you know, jail or something because you said something that, uh, you know, even with the most extreme opinion, unless it's like a thread or something like that, Mm -hmm. you know, no one's going to like, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, I guess, you know, me- mess with you in terms of in that way, but you can lose your employment. You can exactly. lose your, 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 you know, your friends and this and that, and just your standing in whatever community you're a part of. But I guess the, the unique thing here is that um, there's also, there's, there's such a, uh, there's a base for every opinion here in, in America where it's like, it's just like, man, like, okay, well, you got canceled here, which means this side <laughs> is probably ready to embrace you. And maybe you didn't like identify um, with that, but, and you probably still don't, but it's like, it, it's over here. It's, it's just so, it's so weird that um, uh, I guess we do have the luxury of never really quite being canceled. It, it more so just means that like the base that you have this high standing on, you just like no longer have it. And there's always going to be, you know, if, if I, come out today and, and, you know, say, um, and it's unfortunate because like, that's kind of the problem that we have. It's like, I say, I hate this group of people. Unfortunately, like there is a whole other group of people that would embrace me for that. Um, but I guess in, in other countries, you know, to some extent, um, uh, on a political level, um, you know, like censorship, like there's certain sites that you can go on that you, you, you like, you can't see certain stuff, um, or if like you access this information, it's 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 illegal. So I guess like like all that being said, I guess we do have this. Um, uh, you're absolutely right that like it's not like we can just say anything here and go completely scot free. But you do have the the luxury of knowing that your your freedom on a fundamental level would not be affected for like whatever you, you believe. And, and I, and I, and still, I still wonder just how much that impacts, you know, um, on a creative level, like going back to my original question, just like knowing that or being somewhere and knowing that, like, if I say this, um, I might have something happen to me. Like, I just, I just wonder how all of those perspectives, like, like what, the good and the bad that can lead, you know, create creatively speaking. 
Hmm, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, no, that is, that is a lot. Um, you know, losing your employment, losing your social status, these are not small things. And uh, I, there, there are countless examples. Well, maybe not countless. That might be hyperbole. But there are a lot of examples that we all have of people who were, um, I'm thinking of professors because it's a field that I know best, who um, said something that was clearly racist uh, or, or misogynistic. Uh, who have lost their jobs, who can't be employed any longer, um, whose reputations have been damaged. But to me, that's, that's all part of ethics. I also look at people who have plagiarized, who find themselves in the same situation. Uh, so that question of values and ethics to me is, 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 a, is a real one and one that, that I do believe in looking at as part of education. Um, uh, China, for example, is, um, it's, a, it's a different society. It is a, um, it's a, a different form of government. And there are uh, awarenesses that I think students and faculty all have that, um, that, that enables us to work together in a positive way and to do our job and to expose students to certain values and ideas that I think are important for them to have. So by being mindful of what's acceptable, it does enable students as, as well as me to, to maybe be creative in working with a system that is in place. But, you know, again, I keep coming back to how is it different in mm -hmm. many ways in the U.S. My when I was teaching in the U.K., my British students and British colleagues would regularly tell me America's far more racist than Britain. Mm. And um, again, I'm not saying anything that's, that's so original. I think there are many people who feel that what's under the surface, what's hidden away, what one doesn't speak yeah. is still there and it doesn't go away. So issues of discrimination, issues of racism, I would, I would, I would say um, no one would disagree that they're not very much alive and well in the UK, but they're not on the surface the way they are in the US. So I'm, I am appreciative of the fact that we really have the freedom to make what I think and hope are good decisions about how we use language and what ideas we hold valuable. Mm. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. That, God, that's such a good point. And it's, it's, uh, it's a really good observation. Um, and, and I guess bringing it back to, to um, obviously what your, your expertise is, uh, is in, I, I'm, I'm interested, like, so, so, where along your so when, when I was talking to Dr. Robbins, um, she mentioned that like uh, the focus in um, uh, black poets and, and black and African American poetry, um, it came later uh, uh, for her. I think like she had a, a more like a wide f um, uh, focus, and then she narrowed in like uh, eventually. And um, I'm, I'm interested like even like for you like what what was. Was it always that, or was there a moment where you realized, like, okay, like this is this is my thing, and if so, why? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I started um, 
it sounds kind of pretentious, but I really started reading African-American literature in a pretty serious way in high school. Mm. And that, uh, and, and, you know, it goes back to the, the same point I had made earlier. I found it fascinating. And I also found it fascinating that it wasn't being offered to me as part of my education. And I got really bogus reasons why it would be, um, well, there's just not time or, or, well, the curriculum's already set. Or um, we, 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 we would if we were going in that direction, but we're not going in that direction. Mm. So the explanations for, for why it wasn't part of my curriculum, and this goes, you know, this goes, this goes way back. This goes back to the era of the Black Studies programs and the, the Black student unions. So I was extremely interested to know why, and, I, and I'll tell you why, why I think I was interested Anything people go it, put energy into suppressing, there's something there. Mm-hmm. It, it's not just oh, whoops, we forgot, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. or there's not really time. It's 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 much more than that. So I was really, you know, I'm sure I was just a madly irritating kid. I was extremely interested in what are you locking out of my sphere of experience. And why? What kind of a threat does this pose to you? And then when I got into college, uh, there was one African-American literature course available. And then I wound up just taking a whole ton of independent studies because I took an independent study in negritude, um, took an independent study in African-American poetry specifically. Uh, So it was Something that that really compelled me because it was um, a hugely important part of the American story that wasn't being told, therefore, the American story. And we're talking decades ago. So therefore, the American story that we were being presented with couldn't possibly be the whole of the real American story if this big chunk was being excised out of it. So this this was something that I've been doing, you know, since I was. Uh, in in high school, through undergrad, through grad school, um, and it's it's always to me it's always been the most interesting thing. Simple as that. Yeah. Um, I, I've never lost my interest in it. I've never lost my excitement, my enthusiasm. So yeah. you know that's that's the other thing I recommend to my students. You, you know you got to find the thing that will draw you and excite you and inspire you. Long term, don't you know? Don't go through the motions. Find that thing you really love. Yeah. Um, I, I again, I, I I totally agree, and especially that that comment on um, if you're shutting down uh, this large portion of the country's um, uh, insight on something or experiences, then you're also just. I mean, that's just you're just leaving out the country's history as well, and I mean that. That is also just kind of a, um, um, it, it is, it's tough. It's tough because there's, there's so much like, there's so much uh, conflict, even just like in the fundamental approach of, um, you know, it's like, should African-American history even be a separate class? Should it even be? Because there's this on the one hand where it's like, yes, because, because uh, of its um, suppression, it needs to be highlighted And then on the other hand, it's like, oh, but by highlighting it, you're creating this difference um, between, uh, you know, by not putting it under the umbrella of American history, then like you're creating a a difference. And um, uh, I guess within poetry, obviously, you know, within history, I know 
in a way you're you you I guess in a way it's hard to not be a bit of a historian by you know if you're if you're studying all of this this sure. poetry so I mean what what's your what's your 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 take on that in terms of like singling it out and highlighting it but still yeah. you know reminding people that this is very much American history yeah, it's 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 got to be from from my point of view administratively or you know in, in terms of program design, it has to be both. Um, I do think African American literature and culture has grown out of unique circumstances, and to just randomly throw it in a, a, another context is not to respect that there are different theoretical approaches, there are different historical issues, there are different artistic values. So I am a really strong believer, and there was a lot of, of contention when Kenneth Warren wrote uh, his, his, his book from Harvard University Press called What Was African-American Literature? Mm. Um, and um, you know, I have a lot of respect for Professor Warren, but there was a lot of consternation about the idea that somehow uh, it the historical moment had been served mm. and it was no longer necessary to view African-American literature going forward, going into the late 20th and early 21st century as something that was separate from America. Mm. I can understand the rationale. And there's some truth to it, but it has to be a flipping of the script from my point of view. Uh, so I do think that it is still essential to recognize, I have, I have a lot of well-educated students, I have a lot of well-educated colleagues who will say African-American literature and art started with the Harlem Renaissance, right? Mm. They really, they, there's wow. not a lot of knowledge of 400 years of cultural production. Right. So for that reason, I do really defend the idea of of, of, of courses in um, Pan-Africanism and African diasporic literature and culture. But then I think we need to come back with something more than tokenism. I don't find it, I find it well-intentioned when there is a course in, let's say, 20th century American fiction, and maybe they read uh, Color Purple, or maybe they read Native Son, or maybe they read Beloved. Um, okay, that's good. Maybe they read a Langston Hughes poem or two in February or a Maya Angelou poem. And that's fine. That's okay. But how is it being contextualized? Yeah. Um, how are we not leading to other kinds of, 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 of continued stereotyping? So I think if we can come to a point where we are teaching American history and um, I'm not that big a fan of, of nationalistic approaches, by the way, mm. um, just so you know that. But um, if we're going to be teaching American history, American literature, American music, American culture, it, 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 it can't be, oh, yes, and they were doing it, too. Yeah. Um, yeah. It has to be a, a much more expanded vision of here's the totality. This is what we consider to be the greats or the classics. That's one view of the greats. That's one view of the classics. That's one model. There are multiple models. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, uh, I was saying this on a, a previous podcast, in a, I guess in a more humorous tone, but like, um, I mean, even as, as, you know, 
a, a black person my, myself, I, I also think just like framing, I think only paying attention to um, uh, uh, the theme of suffering in 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 uh, black history is is it it's so annoying sometimes in that like you know it, it's it's if if you I think if you um hmm if I if I if you like walked up if you introduced like if you just like did this as like a test to a room maybe there's there's you know fifty people there and you just told people like okay introducing. Um, um, uh, this person focusing on like African American, uh, like anything, anything with language or like, uh, I, I guess like experience in African American history, like people, 49 out of the 50 people in that room are like priming themselves for a story about like just some type of suffering. Like no one's going to expect you to be like, um, I was walking down the street I got some ice cream and it was a great day. Like no one, no one expects that from black, any lens in black history. Like it's always like uh, someone's fucking uh, picking cotton here and doing this and like suffering or crying for this thing. And, and, and that being said, like with, with obviously, you know, with uh, uh, black poetry, there's plenty of that, but just th them as individuals, are there, are, is there, uh, uh, black poetry that you enjoy and where like they are just speaking about their lives, their experiences and it doesn't have anything to do with like this greater black narrative. Of course. And this, and this is, this is um, a, a, a discussion that goes deep, deep into African-American history. Um, Paul Lawrence Dunbar at the beginning of the 20th century um, was, was struggling with the idea that, I'm a poet. I just want to be taken as a poet. Mm. Yes, I'm a black person. That's part of who I am. But why can't you read my poetry as poetry? Mm -hmm. And what he found was that the poetry that fell into a more conventional tradition that was just about being uh, a total human being was not his most popular or most respected poetry. Mm -hmm. It was the poetry and dialect, the poetry that did talk about suffering. And this, this, is, this is something that has continued throughout the literary tradition. Um, but, but it's, again, you know, literature is part of society. So um, I will sometimes present, whether in America or, or UK or China, I'll present a poet and um, um, they're doing something very sophisticated and very skillful, um, not necessarily race oriented or race based. And a frequent response of colleagues and students will be, isn't that remarkable? Yeah. And I'll say, why, why, why do you consider <laughs> that more remarkable than if someone else had written that poetry? Yeah. And the hidden answer is always, it's not what I expect from a black person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, trust. I've been there, know all about that in terms of just like the bar being set so low that, you know, you do like th the bare minimum and, you know, people are like, oh man, I'm just so, so pleasantly, um, uh, uh, surprised. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it, it's tough. I, I remember, um, uh, it was, it was kind of funny just kind of uh, seeing this or, or talking about this with, um, someone, so I, I took a, a, a class while I was going to, um, like in my undergrad and, and, uh, it was focused on, 
um, film and like how film um, impacted uh, um, just black representation and the image of like the black person in the con- in, in the U.S. and um, it even got to a, like I I it was it was interesting. It's like it, do you know the the movie Doctor Doolittle? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's just it's just it's a it's a guy. He's a he's a he's like a vet or something and a veterinarian and he he but he has like this power to talk to animals, and um uh it was interesting because the class debated whether or not it was a black movie, and 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 it's just it's hilarious when you like you you just take the plot, a veterinarian can speak to like has this power to speak to animals and it's just interesting because uh like he he asked this question because. Um, at the time, um, uh, you know, a, a film moves pretty quickly. So I would say like late 90s, early 2000s, there was still this issue of like, well, if we have a plot that has literally nothing to do with race, but we cast an Asian person, a black person or this or that, does it become that color movie? Right. And it's just like it's insane that like Dr. Doolittle could be seen as like a black movie just because like. Eddie Murphy's it's just it's hilarious and and you know that uh, 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 that being said it's like like what are, are there are there are there any black poets uh, who have had the luxury of making just like great poetry that that at least historically speaking that like they've just had that luxury of being like seen as a great poet without you know any of the the, the extra optics it's yeah no that's I, you know again it's, it's 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 a really complicated question. Um, I would say increasingly as we move through the late twentieth and into the twenty first century, I would like to think that there's more sophistication. We've had um, black poets laureate. Uh, we've had we've got. Um, Black university professors who are uh, publishing and getting major awards. So I would like to think that there is more awareness of the range and diversity in any group of people. You know, so that mm-hmm. that's just kind of normal. Um, uh, when I was teaching at Hampton, and maybe you'll appreciate this. Um, my students would sometimes, at first, when they were just getting to know me, at first they would say, um, Professor, what do white people think about this? Mm-hmm. Wow. And, you know, I would say I can speak for myself, but I can't really speak for, you know, a whole race of people. Yeah. That's, you know, it, it's, it's a lot of diversity here. So I would, I would like to think that there has been more recognition that um, any group of people are going to have a range of attitudes and a range of tastes and a range of preferences. Uh, So there's been, you know, brilliant, brilliant black poetry going all the way through the history of the genre that is, that is not necessarily protest, but there's, there's also, uh, you know, a a famous line, African-American poetry contains more protest because there's been more to protest about. Um, So the idea of identity, I think is kind of at the core of everything. Um, uh, Do do you want to say I am 
not American. I'm not female. Um, I, um, there's a there's a, a, a census category in the UK of IC3. And IC3 is a self-chosen category. It's what you choose to identify with. I like that a lot. I had a woman Welsh poet as a student when I was teaching in Wales who said, I want to be seen as a woman poet. And then I've had male poets, male poets of color who say, I want to be seen as an international poet of color. I want to be seen as a male poet. I want to be seen as gender neutral. So how we choose to embrace identity is kind of a personal thing. Mm. And uh, that's, that's kind of a roundabout answer to your question. But I would not think that somebody should go out of their way to deny something that's important to them. Yeah. But I also don't think it's the place of anyone to say, here's what should be important to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I, how can you, how can you disagree with that? I think, um, I mean, that's, that's a struggle that we all have to uh, uh, have as individuals is like, uh, you know, we have our own unique story of just like how we've lived and, um, but on the outside, of course, it's just going to be applied to whatever you can be associated with. And um, yeah, it, it's tough. Like it's it's all up to us to um, figure out like, you know, what percentage of like how I'm externally seen should I, you know, uh, allow to influence my internal processing. And um, especially as an artist um, or as a writer, uh, I'm sure that I mean that's a that's a constant dilemma um, for for uh, all of us. I mean, I'll say in in music, um, you know, uh, comment. I'll, I'll just I'll say like like uh, uh, black artists in the past um, however many years, probably since forever, but I, I guess more so lately. Um, will, uh, you know, maybe respond to the Grammys, like for, for the category that the Grammys will put them in. Like maybe they're oh. just, they're just making pop yeah. music, but like, because they're, they're mm. black and making pop music, like they'll be like, wait, like, why is, why am I being nominated for like best hip hop album right now? <laughs> and right. Or the Lil yeah. Nas X controversy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, oh, whether that's country music or right, not. Right. Um, yeah, which is which is you know, uh, God, we we can get into that all day, but <laughs> um, yeah, you know, of course you can't we can't ignore what um, uh, how powerful aesthetics are, and like you know, you get used to what something looks and feels and sounds like, and um, you know, for to to turn it around on a or to flip that switch on a mass level, of course, there's going to be a little bit of friction and um that was such an important moment just like not even in music just in culture as as a whole um in terms of just like the the fundamental observation from that is that like uh things can look uh different like 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 something can have multiple like aesthetics and optics and um but of course you know and and it's it's tough because it's not in this case it's not it's not even like, like notice how no one was even really bothered about the art itself. Like, cause I, it's hard to call it gatekeeping. It was really more like a cultural, like, um, like this is not like what I know this to be. It had, I don't think anyone cared about the song <laughs> itself. Um, but, uh, do you, do you think like that, that moment, um, is it, is it at all similar to, um, 
I guess like maybe uh, how the poetry community, um, how it like, like it's interesting. How do you, how do you guys discuss the aesthetics of poetry amongst yourselves? Cause you, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> these this is these are all you know really important values, and they do have to do to me with stereotyping and expectations. And this is this is where it all begins. If you are a woman, this is how you should write. If you are an African American, this is how you should write. If you are LGBTQ, this is how you should write. So it's all about those those rigid boundaries that get set up. And you, you, you began our discussion talking about gatekeeping. And that's where I think gatekeeping is the most pernicious and the most concerning when you're denying the, the totality and the individuality of, of any human being. What I particularly focus on, uh, Professor Robbins is very interested in the sonnet as a form. She's very interested in what we consider to be an esteemed um, Anglo-American um, poetic form. Um, my own interest is in avant-garde aesthetics. So I'm very interested in uh, innovative practices in the arts. And I have found that particularly, say, in the last more so, increasingly, it's weird going forward. At the beginning of the century, there were a lot of limitations and a lot of restrictions on what was considered to be the purview of African-American poetry. So the most conventional poetry did tend to become the most famous and the most perpetuated. But it, again, it's not, not entirely a surprise. During the 1960s and 70s, where there was more cultural ferment and um more consciousness of civil rights, some really innovative African-American art and culture came to awareness. Um, and from the, about the 1980s on, a lot of that work has been lost or mm. overlooked. Mm. Um, and I think it's because it, it can't be easily placed in the categories mm -hmm. that we want it to be placing a lot of art and culture in. So a number of poets whose work would have been somewhat readily available in the 1960s and 70s um, uh, disappeared, mm -hmm. really, from publication and from public knowledge. And I've got two anthologies with my colleague Alden Lynn Nielsen that are formally innovative African-American poetry from World War II to the present. Yeah. And so we've charted about 70 years of, of uh, African-American poetry that completely broke all those stereotypes yeah. and that were working very individualistic paths. And, and I think that's where we've got to get, that we've got to get to that respect for individuality, which doesn't deny identity. It doesn't deny experience. Mm. It doesn't overlook it. But it it um, it allows artists to transmit it in a way that suits their sensibility. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, I, I think with with everything you just said, I, I'm kind of realizing I've never. Um, uh, I, I guess it's it's kind of similar maybe to a non musician in that like you're probably not thinking too much about the music business. Um, when you're just like listening to a song and, but maybe not because like there's so many movies and things and documentaries that like discuss the music business. But um, I mean, I've never really heard anyone discuss the business of poetry in the sense that like, 
I'm now wondering, like, how much have uh, 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 publishers, like, how 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 big of an impact do publishers and what they decide to to publish and fund, like, like, it it it. I guess the business of poetry and poetry, in a way, go hand in hand. In a, like, 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 do you have any any insight in terms of just like like how how much power they have when like just selecting like okay I think people will enjoy this or buy this or or not. This goes back to to what we were talking about um, a little bit earlier. There there is a term that 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 that's commonly used kind of sarcastically, pobiz. <laughs> Yeah. And you know, pobiz, as you can imagine, is the business of poetry. Wow. And the stakes can be shockingly high. There are big money poetry awards. People really can um, make a, make a shocking amount of money giving readings and um, just just the pure purse of some of these um, highly esteemed poetry prizes. Um, many of the many of us look at it with a certain amount of skepticism. Um, um, th- there's a there's a, a funny story about a poet named John Ashbery, who got kind of the trifecta of the top poetry prizes all in one year. And he maybe maybe it's um, apocryphal. He was telling friends, "I'm famous now. I'm famous." <laughs> and they said, "John, there's a difference between being famous and being a famous poet." Um, you know, we're still not, we don't, we don't kid ourselves into thinking that the stakes are the same as for novels, for example, or certainly for film, for, for popular music. It's, it's a very different level of stakes. And yet the, that you can, you can, um, you can be in a, a kind of rarefied group of people who are called on for a lot of things. Um, uh, and it, and it can be, it can create lots and lots of opportunities as well as being quite lucrative. Now, you mentioned aesthetics. What the question is between that popularity and that esteem and that aesthetics is something that that is is certainly open to discussion. Are the most renowned and most famous poets always the, the best poets? Well, if I turned it to you with music, if I said, are the most renowned musicians always the best musicians? What would you say? So as you can tell, I am very, very bad at giving simple answers or simple questions. I, oh, I, that's because, great. There are very few simple questions yeah, and very few simple it, answers. I appreciate that. So it's tough because I'll, I'll say it in a way where like it kind of applies to all like, you know, top level, whatever, in you know, industry you're in, in that like, um, okay. So if you're discussing... This is this is so tough because a career and talent are two different things. That it sounds obvious and basic when you say it, but it's we forget that we forget that. Like the best, um, we like that we may never know who the best person who has ever written songs, like who the best songwriter is. Maybe they never published it. Maybe they didn't go into music. Maybe you know. They're like, who, who knows? Like, and, and that being said, um, I used to, I used to like do so much like debating in my head of like, who's the best, who's the best, who's the best. And then as I got deeper into my own music career and realizing that like, there is an art to executing any type of success in the business that like, 
the combination of the two is truly what is most important in terms of your 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 how well can you execute and your talent and the top guys like if we're i mean if we're talking about today's music we're talking about drake taylor swift adele ed sharon um you know and and we can talk about any of the guys in the in the era but it's like okay um if i look at them in the past 10 11 years whatever they were on tour like 50 percent of the time they were doing this interview and this and that and like they were there are aspects to them where it's just like okay they in certain ways they also just outworked everyone and like dared to actually do it which is the one thing that gets in the way of most people in that like you might have all the talent in the world, but to actually go out there and like execute is so tough. And so, yeah, I, I you know, it, it's, it's a hard, it's, it's hard to answer that quickly because if you're, if you're in that game, if you're in your industry where you are like also trying to like rise as well, you know how like, you know, practicing the music, making the music and then like getting it out there, like those are, they're both equally difficult in their own way. So I'll, I'll conclude there, but I'm sure with poetry too, there's like a, um, you can write all the, you can write the best poems, you can do all this, but like there's a certain level of execution um, that Amanda Gorman must have in the sense that like her being in her position was like deliberate moves and you can't really, you can't do that with talent. So, uh, you know, I, 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 I guess, give the microphone back to you. Like what, what, what's your take on that? Yeah, no, I, I think um, the, the, the scale is not the same because the economics aren't the same, mm. but I think the same principle applies. Um, there are, there are people who um, cannot be relied on to show up on time. Mm. Uh, there are people who uh, are socially awkward um, there, there, there are people who um, um, are very physically attractive, very vivacious, very charismatic, um, um, dress with tremendous style. I mean, I can think of examples of people who, who present in ways that are socially admired or culturally esteemed. Mm-hmm. And do I always find their poetry, you know, so fascinating? Not necessarily. I've known a lot of really brilliant poets who um, I, um, you know, I, I think their careers have been limited for reasons that, that probably make sense. Um, it matters less when you're talking about publication when then when you talk about being interviewed mm-hmm. or going on tour or having a college think that you would be a good choice to, um, to, to give a prestigious poetry reading. Uh, publishers stand for different things. And what we tend to have in poetry, I mean, to sort of get to the nitty gritty, we have small press publishers and then we have large mainstream publishers. So uh, there are fewer and fewer publishers, places like Penguin or um, uh, Norton, uh, fewer and fewer places are publishing a whole lot of poetry where they will distribute large quantities. If you're talking about 10,000 copies of a poetry volume, 
that's quite successful. 10,000 copies of, of a blockbuster novel is, is a disaster. Yeah. So uh, the, the, the field is quite constrained. But there are places that are considered to be prestigious for publication. There are awards that are considered to be prestigious within certain communities of poetry. Mm. And this is where the kind of chaos and division comes in. It's always nice to get to, to, to have a, a, a well-known mainstream publisher take your work or a, a journal that is, that is highly regarded. Uh, does it mean your, your work is necessarily great? Not necessarily. It might mean that it's very mainstream. Yeah. It might mean it's very accessible, very recognizable in the maneuvers. Um, I, I know, you know, countless really, you know, brilliant poets who are not going to get a, po a poem in the New Yorker. They're not. Maybe they've gotten other awards, other prizes, other recognition, but they're not going to get a poem in the New Yorker because they're not writing New Yorker poems. Yeah. Wow. Um, and, and something you, you said earlier, I think is so, so important to emphasize, especially like for anyone listening that's not um, in... Um, you know, in an industry like like poetry or, or music, in that like th there, it can be easy to assume um, that because it's business that everyone is trying to be number one, and and that's it's not that's not true. I love that you said that, like different publications have different um, uh, goals, and that like maybe maybe the easiest um, uh, analogy like like is is like Ferrari purposefully does not sell as many cars as Toyota. Like that is on purpose. Like it is, mm -hmm. it is like there's, there are late, there's music labels and publications out there that like purposefully do not want to expand in some type of way. So I, I love that you said that because it's so important to um, emphasize that. But on the other hand, um, there's probably more variance within that than like, like, cause it's, 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 it would, I think it's tough for any artist to be like, oh, no, I, I don't want as many people to know as, exactly. you know, so, so that's the tough part is like, are you as an artist like willing to also have that similar mindset to maybe the smaller music label or smaller publication? Um, so it's, it's interesting if, if there's like a, if there's a hundred publications and there's a thousand artists and like 950 or, or poets and the 950 of those poets want like, their stuff to go through the top three publications, right? Then it's like, it's tough because, you know, um, you know, it, anyway, it's a, to, I think to, to kind of conclude my point is that it, it, from a musician, I'm aware of how the business of it impacts the art directly, because if you are now creating to be accepted by this thing, then, you know, and, and I, I, I would say years ago, I would say like, that's a problem, but now it's it's almost like um, it, it's almost naive to to try to ignore the relationship that anything has with money and and success. You know, like if 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 in in a way that is the art. It, it, it's it's so embedded. Like the need for all of that is so embedded into everyday life that like. To, to, to dissect it from it is tough. It's very tough. I, you know, I direct creative writing programs and for, you know, for my whole career, 
Um, this is why, you know, parents sort of like me. Um, they'll want their, their child to do something that is a more predictable career path to um, a comfortable life. And I've, I have really emphasized you've got to pay your rent. You've got to feed yourself. Yeah. Here's a, you want to be a poet? I'm all about it. But let's figure out how you can do it and make it be a living. Because realistically, I mean, it'd be preposterous to say people, people go into poetry to get rich. You know? Yeah. you know that you're not going into a field where people are going to be paying you a lot of money to write poetry. But there are many ways to make a great living where you are practicing your art and you are taking care of yourself at the same time. Um, there, are, uh, there are many small presses that I would consider, and, and uh, journals, creative you know, poetry journals, that in my view are more prestigious and more respected. I think of Hambone, um, um, directed by um, Nathaniel Mackey. I think of Obsidian, that's, that's edited by Duriel Harris, Duriel Estelle Harris. Um, I, for me, those are more prestigious than what might be considered or checks press uh, headed by Charles Alexander. They're more prestigious for me than many more famous poetry publishing outlets. And they don't deliberately say we're going to be small. It's yeah. not, there's never an intent to say we want as few people to read this poetry as possible. It's just not realistic because of the integrity of, of what the aesthetic path is. Mm -hmm. So realistically, it's probably not going to ever be the, the, the New Yorker or, or um, um, the Harper's poem. Mm -hmm. um, but if it happened miraculously, That'd be fine. That'd yeah. be great. Yeah. No, but nobody says I don't want to reach everybody. Right. It's it's just that it's not. I would not say it's a goal. Yeah. If it it's, it would be something that would happen, and we've yeah. seen so many examples of painters and musicians and writers who did not set out for fame and fortune. We've also seen some, you know, got, you've got the, the Charles Dickens example of people who are, or Mark Twain, you've got people who really did mm -hmm. want to be prominent, Gertrude Stein even, uh, prominent and prosperous. Uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar wanted to make his living as a poet. It was really symbolically important to him. Um, but to what extent, extent are you looking for survival comfortably and are you looking for fame and renown and to be viewed as as the, the the best of the best. Yeah, that 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 is it's. So what what you just said made me. Um, uh, I was thinking of it in another lens. In that, like, because I it's tough because I they make plenty of money. Everyone knows who they are. Yet, it's almost kind of the same as what you're saying. So, um, and I I wonder if you agree with this, but like. I maybe to, to people listening, it might be easier to understand from a like, um, okay, if NBC and Fox try to make 30 new TV shows um, a year, and you know, maybe they're not putting in like a ton of time into all those those shows, and it's for like this super wide audience, and then you've got HBO 
who is maybe only making like five or six new shows a year. And I, and that's why like I hesitated because everyone knows who HBO is. They make a ton of money, you know, every, like, you know, but like, but it's almost in the, in this, it's almost similar in the sense that like the, the, I feel like they have succeeded in the, we choose to be smaller, but we're also in a way like outshining the quote unquote, like bigger person. And and my question is like, how does it, how do you get to that point in like other industries too? Yeah. I I, want to tell you something about poetry specifically that sounds like it's small and local, Mm -hmm. but I think it really speaks to what you're saying. Often my students will think my creative writing students who want to be poets and are practicing poets, they'll say, I have to write about something universal. I have to write about something that everybody will understand. And I've told them, I, I, I know it's counterintuitive, but if you write about what is intensely personal, it is more likely to have a wide impact than something that is too generic and just too abstract when you're writing about justice and, and loving your grandfather. Yeah. And it doesn't doesn't hit home the same way as when you're writing about something that's really quite unique to you because it's actually the unique to each of us that I think is the universal. Yeah. Yeah. That that's, and, and uh, that, that, that's so interesting because um, <laughs> this is, it's almost, it's going to bother me just because it's like, I, I, I'm, I'm now just so curious and, and maybe it's because um, uh, uh, film also adds uh, visuals and there's so there's just more stimulation with video and that being said it's like like I'm even thinking of um, something like uh, Game of Thrones I, I can imagine Game of Thrones being something that on paper with no visuals if you pitched to like major cable companies they'd be like yeah I don't really think like uh, 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 um, a large amount of people are going to like this like sword fighting old school like and oh there's incest in there and there's the all this like very weird specific stuff but then like you know this uh, private company uh, HBO then makes and the whole world absolutely loves it and, and my, my I, and the reason why I just I keep going back to like the film stuff is just because it's like how I guess that visual aspect really helps, but like how they're able to achieve that niche and and still make it both very good and very popular, you know? Thinking of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which of course started off as something visual, but I, I, don't, I don't know anybody who works for, for Marvel, but did they predict that the films would have this kind of universal appeal. They're kind of weird. You know, these characters are, are very eccentric. Yeah. Um, they have complicated backstories. They have, you know, strange powers that, that sometimes fail them. Um, you know, we, we know these characters quite well. Yeah. Um, would, would that have been something that would have been seen as having such, such universal appeal? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's just, I, and, and I love that, that you use that as an example, just because I think if you, I think if you talked about it in a way where like, you, you know, maybe someone didn't like see it coming, I, I think people would also realize how ridiculous it, it is, even though it's great in that, like, if I, if I was like, 
hey, let's look at like what made what companies or what projects or whatever made like a billion dollars in 2017. And I was like, okay, this company that sells chicken, they made billions of dollars. This company that sells eggs or whatever they did. And then, oh yeah, like that one thing that like they made a movie about like a guy that can turn into the size of an ant. Yeah, they also made a billion (laughs) dollars too. Like I, I think if you like, if you said it in that way, you then realize it's just like, it, it, I mean that, but that is like the the isn't that like the question of all businesses? Like, what do people want, and then like why do they want that, and why was it so successful or not? But um, I, I do I think bringing 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 it back to poetry and and even other art forms that have not achieved that ability to make uh, something very very niche and out there very popular. I, I just I. I Okay, it, that that's gonna bother me, and I just I just wonder what it um, takes to do. Well, that. here's here's maybe this will help it not bother you so yeah. much. There's also that question of across time. Um, if you go back and look at famous works of literature, mm. and I'm sure the same thing is true in, in other fields as well, things that were famous and revered and considered to be the best of the best and got the big glittery prizes. It's shocking how many of them 50 or even 25 or 100 years later are completely lost and forgotten. Mm -hmm. So being uh, highly, highly rewarded in the present moment, if the quality is not there, it's no guarantee that it will last in stature. Yeah. 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 Wow. Um, So it's what you're it's what you're aiming for. I think of, you know, what was Miles Davis looking for? Yeah, I I think and I I, I think like you 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 put it in in such a a great perspective in that like it's not it's not just like the um, uh, did I make it in my in the moment that I am alive for um, uh, that like what you create is is um, it's out there. It's out there forever. And it might have like different waves of success or lack of success. Um, That's definitely a thing in music in that like there's composers or people who um, did not get to see their music uh, be celebrated. And like now we play it all the time, but they, they died probably thinking they were like a failure in, at what they did, you know? Um, and yet they did it. And to, to me, that's what really matters. You know, ultimately, I, I, I think you, if you're, if you're an artist, you're going to live your truth. And yes, to get your work out there to be, I know I, I, I work with my students to read their work well. They, to, 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 we practice for poetry readings and I make them read their poems over and over and over before they give a public reading. So being able to get your work out there is, is, is important. It, it can help you with your economic survival. It helps self-esteem. You know, we feel good by, by getting our work out there and people appreciate it and enjoy it. And yet, if that's your entire motivation, that's I think that's quite different than being an artist that really wants to share their art. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and speaking of that, because I know I know we're we're getting close to our time here. But in, in terms of, of getting, uh, you know, people's work out there, because I think that. Um, you you talked about it uh, earlier, but your work of of putting together all of these poems um, from uh, black poets that you know were either completely lost or, or forgotten. Um, I, I I think that that's I think it's so important um, 
And it's, it's awesome that you've done that. And where, where can, what, so first of all, what are the, 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 the titles of, you, you have two, right? Um, no, I've, got, I have quite a few books. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. One a book that I would, I would love people to know about is called the history of African American poetry. And that was published by Cambridge university press in hardcover in 2019. It's coming out this year in soft cover and I create a new canon, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the premise of the book is that the canon, the, the, what we consider to be the esteemed poems of, of African-American culture are uh, too narrow and too uh, limited in time. And so I go back quite a bit earlier. There's, there's, uh, there's a wonderful book called Drum Voices by Eugene Redmond. That is was the only book that really attempted to create a history of African-American poetry. And it's a fabulous book, but it was published in 1975. And it only covers 100 years of African-American poetry. Uh, and there was there was there was no other comparable volume. So mine uh, goes back 400 years wow. and. I focus on particularly the poetry that I think is magnificent that has been lost or ignored or neglected or suppressed. And I contextualize it with the, so the famous figures. So I put it in relation to people like Francis Ellen Watkins Harper and Phyllis Wheatley and Paul Lawrence Dunbar and Langston Hughes, but it's in relation to them. My focus is who don't you know about that I think you really ought to know about. Mm -hmm. So that's a history of African-American poetry. I have another book called Slave Songs and the Birth of African-American Poetry. And that's published by Paul Grave Macmillan. And in that book, my, my basic claim is the American canon of poetry, which typically begins with Whitman, Walt Whitman and Emily Dickinson, Mm. uh, shouldn't we shouldn't really look at the american canon the american classics of poetry as starting there that the true american classics of poetry are the spirituals and um you know it's kind of a, a, a bold claim i really stand behind it if we consider classics to be something that has lasted the test of time that has had tremendous widespread impact that has completely infused our culture then that's not Whitman. That's not Dickinson. That's actually the spiritual. So that's um, that's called Slave Songs and the Birth of African American Poetry. Um, I have a book called Black British Writing, and I um, I uh, in that book, uh, which was which was uh, authored with Victoria Arana, we try to give professors a way to incorporate Black British literature and history and culture in their traditional British literature courses. And I have um, a, a book coming up soon from Wesleyan University Press that'll be out later this year that is Selected Poems of Calvin C. Herrington, who is very famous for writing a book called Sex and Racism in America. He was my own mentor and he really viewed himself first and foremost as a poet. So that's something I'd love people to look out for. I'll, uh, I'll shortly have a selected poems of A.B. Spellman coming out. And that's another marvelous poet who's also a fantastic jazz critic. You might be familiar with Four Lives in the Bebop Business by oh. A.B. Spellman. And yeah. if you don't know that book, I really recommend it highly. 
Wow. Um, and then the two anthologies that I yeah. did with Alvin Lynn Nielsen are called Every Goodbye Ain't Gone and What I Say. And that's, those are the two books. It's a two-volume anthology where we lay out the history of avant-garde practice in African-American poetry from the around 1945 to 2015 is when the second volume was published. Wow. Um, that's amazing. You've, you've, you've done a lot. You've written a, a you know, a ton of, of stuff. And I, I, this is, it's, it's great just because like, obviously, you know, in this conversation, we've, uh, talked about so much. And I think like, like why I, I love, you know, going from, you know, I know your expertise is on poetry, but in terms of talking about many things is, is because in real time, people can listen to how everything, like, everything is connected to everything. You can, you can create a relationship between like that specific thing that you do with almost about anything if you really, really try. And, and that being said, like my, my last uh, question for you is that like for someone listening who is going to go check out all this stuff and maybe, um, you know, it's kind of similar to, like, to classical music, which is my field, like that intimidation to just like approach this new thing. What, what is, what, how, when they're reading this stuff, what can they keep in mind or, or, or maybe the things that they already know in terms of like creating relationship with this stuff? Like what, what, what's your advice for that? Yeah. Creating a relationship is the perfect phrase. Um, that's what it is. Remember, it's just you and the poet and the poem. Yeah. Don't feel like you need to have an expert. Um, j- just go with it. See what the poem is offering to you. Yeah. Uh, you wouldn't um, walk into a chicken restaurant and say, I want a hamburger. Uh, that's kind <laughs> of what you do with a poem. You say, what's the poem offering me? You don't get mad because it's not offering you what you what you think it should be yeah. or what you want or what you used what we are used to let the poem give you what it seems to be giving you and whatever you're feeling is probably an accurate or valid response but then you want to trace it back let's say the poem makes you feel anxious what is it about the poem that makes you feel anxious? Can you point to a place in the poem? Does the poem make you feel peaceful? Okay. Why? What, what is it about the poem? So develop your own relationship with the poem. If you get interested in it and excited about it, certainly you can read what critics have said. But for me, it's really about realizing that you are as much an authority, you are as much the audience of the poem that the poet had in mind as poetry specialists. The poet wants you to read their poem. Yeah. They really do. Wow. Um, that is a, a perfect answer. I feel the same way about all like all music um, in that, you know, you might be, uh, you may have watched uh, videos or seminars, whatever, maybe the di- experts discussing um, uh, these things. And, you know, there might be a ton of posturing in some of those things that you've seen. Like there's, there's different motives for why people might speak about things in certain ways, but like just you as the, the, the person consuming that art or that whatever in the moment, like, just like you just said, um, Lori, like, you, you know, you have the full authority to say, I 
don't really understand that. Or I do think I understand in this way, but I do understand how, like I I can totally get how when you see people who are, you know, experts in a field discussing something, I can totally understand how that can be um, intimidating. I had a feeling that poetry um, for a lot of people can have that, um, uh, just, just the entry, just getting into it, there can just be that intimidation. And, and so anyway, to conclude, I, I love that um, uh, response that you had. And um, yeah, I encourage everyone listening to go um, check out uh, um, your books, and I, which I'll, I'll like post um, the links and everything in the episode description where people can um, uh, access that and just check you out too, just to, you know, maybe read more about you. But um, yeah, this is, this has been awesome. I now know so much more that I didn't know. And, um, yeah, thank you. Just thank you for, and for if I can time. be helpful. I, you know, I'm so happy to, to hear from anybody. So feel free to contact me and I want to thank you so much. This has been a fantastic conversation. I have so much respect and admiration for you. I completely enjoyed your company and I thank you for inviting me. Uh, thank you. Feeling is the same or mutual. And, uh, yeah, yeah. So everyone listening, uh, thank you if you made it all the way to the end. Um, this is a song called Life and We're Done. Peace. Cool.